0: To walk before God, to walk blamelessly, means to have a constant regard of His Word as our rule and His glory as our end. Is that true about you this morning? Do you have a constant regard for God's Word as your rule and God's glory as your end? This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Genesis 17 is very foundational. It's foundational, first of all, because it is um, a, a passage in the Bible that is one of the most, if not the most, fundamentally important passages in understanding God's relationship with His people. It is a passage that teaches us in no uncertain terms regarding the grace of God. What is the grace of God? Why is it that God would enter into a covenant with sinners? Why would God have a relationship with sinners? And what is to mark the covenant people of God? How are they to live their lives? How are they to respond to God's grace? All of those sorts of issues are laid out here in Genesis chapter 17. Among a host of others. So I'm sure you found your place there, and if you have, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I want to begin reading in verse 1. Now, hear the Holy Word of God. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. both he and who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This is the pure, unadulterated word of our living God. Well, as I said, this is one of the most fundamentally important passages in all of sacred scripture, if not the most important passage in sacred scripture in defining to us God's relationship with his covenant people and defining to us God's relationship with his elect people and defining to us God's relationship with those who share the faith of our father Abraham. Earlier, I read to you Romans chapter 4, which would be a sister passage to Genesis chapter 17, wherein we read, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. That is Abraham's offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, that is the Jew, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. That is the Gentile who comes to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ The faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, whether Jew or Gentile. That's why Paul says in the New Testament, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Paul goes on to say in Romans 4, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations and the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And then the Bible says, and hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what? He had promised. So as you see, according to the Apostle Paul, who writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his understanding of God's covenant with Abraham and the type of faith that Abraham had, had massive consequences for the people of God all the way into Paul's own day. And not merely for the ethnic Jew, but also for the one who had faith like Abraham, who was a Gentile and uncircumcised. Basic to the gospel was Paul's understanding that Abraham was justified by faith. Abraham was declared righteous according to his faith. God has made a covenant here in Genesis 17 with Abraham, and that word covenant is going to be a key concept to understand as we unlock this passage. Uh, The Hebrew word is berit, and the word literally means to cut. And we have read from Genesis 17 that God has warned Abraham and his offspring, all that would come after him, that they will be cut off from among the people of God if the terms and conditions of this particular covenant are not met. As a matter of fact, if you want sort of a violent and very literal illustration of what it means to be cut off from. From God turn back with me to Genesis chapter 15 because earlier God had already made a covenant with Abraham and in fact all the way back in Genesis 12 God had come to Abraham to make a covenant what we find in Genesis 17 is now the ratification of God's promises already made a renewal of God's promises already made but back in Genesis 15 we read in verse 7 he said to him That is Abraham. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? In other words, how am I to know that I can trust you? You have made a covenant with me. You have made a promise to me that me and my offspring, who, by the way, don't exist yet, will inherit this land. What is it that you're going to do whereby I can cling to your promises. And verse 9, he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon, and he brought him all these and he cut them in half. He laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Here is a covenantal ceremony, the word covenant, reap meaning to cut, and here is God cutting his covenant by cutting animals in half, laying them out. He will walk between them later on in the passage, all of which to signify that may this happen to the person who breaks this covenant. May what happen? A slaughtering, a cutting off, a cutting in half, May blood be shed. God is making a covenant blood oath with Abraham that he will remain faithful to his promises, but that Abraham must trust God and Abraham must walk in a blameless way, clinging to the promises of God. So we, here we see at the very outset that a covenant at its root has two basic parties. Now, many of you live in neighborhoods that have, what we refer to as HOAs. HOAs, I think, were invented in hell itself. They are a means by which the people who live in those neighborhoods are bound, as it were, by blood to make sure that their little yards are mowed and their little driveways have no oil on them And that their little mailboxes are nice and pristine and you're planting the right shrub and you're not adding on or taking away not one jot, not one tittle from the commands and the stipulations of the HOA. I still don't know who the HOA is. They tell me that they have faces and names. I have no clue who they are, but I know they have a lot of power. And I know there's terms and conditions to this contract and this covenant that I sign that if I violate, I am in sin. And it's actually called a covenant. Now, maybe you're not part of an HOA, but maybe you have signed a contract in your life. I've signed various contracts in my life. I recently signed one, um, as a soccer coach at Florida Elite Soccer Academy, which had terms and stipulations within it, that if I violate those terms and stipulations, those commitments that I have made, not only am I in jeopardy of being fired, but I am in jeopardy, listen to me very clearly on this, of being a liar and being in sin. The Bible is very clear that covenants and contracts and vows and oaths are not to be trifled with you can make yourself out to be a liar to the point that perhaps the truth is not even in you when you go back on your word back on your promise but in scripture the covenants that we speak about are not made up of two equal parties. You do this, I'll do this. It's not an equal give and take because in Scripture, any covenant that God makes, He is the superior. Um, God is the one who initiates the covenant. God is the one who activates the covenant. God is the one who communicates the covenant. God is the one who lays out the terms and the conditions and the promises. And not only that, but God is the one who empowers you to hold up on your end of the bargain he supplies the grace he supplies the power he supplies the faith for you to meet the stipulations but all covenants are conditional whether you're speaking about covenants and the world we live in or the world of the bible they are conditional god makes promises God lays out conditions. God supplies the grace and the faith to meet the demands of the covenant. And in Genesis 17, God is presenting to Abraham his covenant of grace. His covenant of grace. We could describe God's covenant of grace this way. God's covenant of grace is a gracious agreement between the offensive sinner and the offended God. More narrowly, a gracious agreement between the offended God, the offensive sinner who is elect by God, whereby God promises salvation through faith in Christ and of which the elect sinner embraces that Christ, that mediator with faith, a faith rooted in the grace of God, a faith supplied by the very hand of God that then results in obedient life that is a definition of the covenant of grace one author of a very well-known catechism called the heidelberg catechism we quoted it here this morning says that God establishes a covenant with, and I quote, all those whom God, out of the mass of lost men, has decreed to adopt as children by grace and to endow them with faith, end quote. That is to give them faith. So we're talking about the elect people of God. We're talking about something God sovereignly does when he enters a covenant. It's conditional... In the sense that there are obligations even up on the part of man. But it is unconditional in the sense that God initiates it and God empowers the response of the people he enters covenant with. Now it's also critical to understand, and this is sort of just an overview this morning of what we might call covenant theology. That with this covenant of grace that God enters into with man, there is another covenant that maybe you're not familiar with, that took place not in redemptive history, but all the way back in the secret mind and counsel and decrees of God in eternity past. We refer to it as the covenant of redemption. What is the covenant of redemption? Well, it is the plan of redemption made in the eternal decree or counsel of God. A covenant or a bond that was cut between the three members of our Godhead. We read about it, for example, in 2 Timothy 1.9, where we read that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before the world came into existence as we know it, there was an eternal purpose and grace, which God chose to accomplish through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the covenant of redemption. If you want a fuller definition of that, Ephesians chapter 3, I think lays it out for us. Ephesians chapter 3 and in verse 8, Paul says to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God that is in the mind and the heart of God that has been hidden and planned who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places this Paul says was according verse 11 to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord so there is an eternal purpose in eternity past that was planned out by our triune God in a covenant bond-like form that has now been realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the covenant of grace. The grace that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. So this covenant of redemption is a voluntary agreement in the form of a covenant. God the Father is the originator. God the Son is the executioner. And God the Holy Spirit is the applier. Christ, as the executioner of this covenant, is the head of his people. He is the mediator of the covenant. So, for example, we read statements like this made by our Lord, John 5.30, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That was another way of Jesus saying, I have come to fulfill my end of the covenant, to be the mediator and the executioner of securing salvation For the people of God, according to the eternal purpose of God. Or if you like, you're very familiar with this. Jesus said in John 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is the head and surety of this covenant. Romans 5.17 says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 15.22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam failed. The second Adam succeeded. He is the head of this covenant of grace, which flows from this covenant of redemption. Because when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons jesus was our substitute jesus did what we couldn't do this is the covenant of grace he is our head he is our representative he did what the first adam failed to do he first of all fulfilled all righteousness never sinning in thought word or deed obeying the law of god perfectly which Adam did not do and we do not do and then he died as a bloody substitute and sacrifice on the cross for the sake of his people as an executioner of the will the eternal plan and purpose of God the covenant of redemption was realized in Jesus Christ so that the covenant of grace flows from the covenant of redemption the covenant of redemption took place in eternity past The covenant of grace takes place in this lifetime, in this world, culminating in the coming of the executioner and mediator of the covenant, who is the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. With that being said, there's something else that's very, very critical to understand. And that is that in this covenant of grace that flows from this covenant of redemption, this covenant of redemption in eternity past now gives way to this covenant of grace. In this life, there are various forms and administrations of this one covenant of grace. You could call these various forms dispensations. Now, there is a type of theology It is referred to as dispensationalism. And that is not what I'm talking about this morning. But the word dispensations is a biblical word, not because it's found in the Bible, but because the word dispensation is identifying a biblical category pointing to the fact and acknowledging the fact that though there is one covenant of grace, this one covenant of grace took various forms throughout redemptive history, and there was a progression that ultimately culminated in Christ. But there were many covenants. For example, turn back with me to Genesis chapter 3. In verse 15, here we see a covenant Adam and Eve have sinned. They have fallen. Adam has eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God forbade him to eat of, forbade him to eat of. God shows his grace and his forgiveness. Verse 15, he makes a promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to Satan, the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, would crush the head of the serpent. The heel of Christ would be bruised. He would be sacrificed, crucified. He would rise again three days later and have victory. This is the first example of what we refer to as the covenant of grace. God is making a promise, a promise that is not reactionary. It's not like the fall happened and God said, Now I need to think what I'm going to do. This whole world I created has gone wrong. Oh, no. We've already talked about the covenant of redemption. God had already planned in eternity past that Jesus Christ would be the executioner of this covenant of redemption. So God not only knew Adam would sin, God ordained that Adam would sin. So when it happened, he wasn't surprised. And he said, I'm going to manifest my glory more fully to my creation by undoing what sinful man has done. And there will be a baby that will come from a real woman that will crush the head of this serpent and remove him from God's garden forever. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And what the second Adam, Christ, came to do and was sent to do and was successful in doing stands in contrast to the first Adam because there was a covenant God had made with the first Adam. We often refer to it as the covenant of works. It's a covenant in which God said, in the day that you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. The implication being that if you don't eat of it, you will live forever and all your children after you. But Adam failed. And in fact, we know that that was a covenant arrangement. Because the Old Testament tells us in Hosea 6-7 that like Adam, we have all transgressed the covenant. In other words, there is not a difference between anyone in this room. We, like Adam, have sinned. We, like Adam, have transgressed the covenant God had made a covenant with Adam and Adam transgressed it so God makes a covenant of grace and he says I'm going to fix this but then you fast forward further in the Old Testament and you see that God then makes a covenant with Noah go with me to Genesis chapter 6 in Genesis chapter 6 in verse 9 It says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Chapter 7, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You know the story. God saves one household. Noah is the head of this household. God spares them from the flood. Saves them from the flood which engulfed his entire creation. The result of sin. And then look at chapter 9 of Genesis and verse 9. Verse 8 says, God said to Noah and to his sons. That's interesting. Noah, what I'm getting ready to tell, to, tell you applies to your sons as well. Those in your household. Behold. I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And verse 10 says, with every living creature that is with you, even birds and livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Admittedly, this is more of a universal covenant. There are universal ramifications. Anytime that you see a rainbow, I remember the first time I saw a rainbow as a little kid, and my parents explained to me that this is a sign of the promise of God never to flood the world again. And even as a child, when it rained, I never had to worry that it would flood the whole world because of the promise of God. Very simple, even a child can understand it. And even Noah and his sons understood that and his offspring after him. And God has been faithful to this covenant. But as you fast forward through time, you see that God is not making a covenant ultimately with his creation. He's making it with a particular people. And that's what we see in Genesis 17 in this covenant with Abraham. There had been families of the earth that believed in God, like Noah, righteous people, But now God begins to, here's the language I want to use again, cut out from the world, mark out from the world a specific verifiable people. And the sign of this covenant that he makes with Abraham will be circumcision, a sign that goes on the body to verify the people of God. So this thing is being narrowed down so that by the time you get to God's covenant with Moses, On Mount Sinai, where the stone tablets are made and God engraves with his finger the law of God, you not only have a people of God, but now you have a nation. You have legislation of laws. You have civil life. You have prophets and priests and kings and a society and a nation and a little kingdom that God has made a covenant with. And you say, well, yeah, but that was the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, if Moses and the people of Moses' day wanted salvation, they had to obey that law because there were blessings and there were cursings to the law of God. But what do we read, for example, in Deuteronomy eight? We read this, God's promise to Moses. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land. What land? The same land he promised Abraham that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give them and to their offspring after them. So whatever is taking place on Sinai is not taking place in isolation. It is being built upon this one covenant of grace, which we saw a glimpse of in the garden, which we saw a glimpse of with Noah, which we saw with Abraham, and now we're seeing with Moses and the people of God. Again, God tells Moses in Exodus 32, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. That's what God tells Moses. Moses understood that whatever covenant he was in was building upon the covenant God made with Abraham. And even still, Perhaps more clearly, by the way, all of these verses I'm reading are in the Pentateuch, which were written by Moses because he wants you to understand as you read your Bible that he understood that whatever covenant God made with him came from a covenant before him, the covenant with Abraham. And so Moses repeats, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you, or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 31. God will not forget his covenant that he swore to your father Abraham. And so we see a unity, don't we? We see a continuity between God's promises to Abraham and God's promises to Moses. And it's beautiful how Scripture brings out the unity of these covenants. Even in the Psalms. Listen to this Psalm. The Psalmist says, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers His covenant forever. The word that He commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that He made with Abraham, His sworn promise to Isaac, which He confirmed to Jacob as a statute, and to Israel as an everlasting covenant. The Israel of Moses. The ones who receive the law are connected to Abraham. There is continuity and unity, as the psalmist writes, to praise God for both of these covenants. And God nationalizes his people, civil life with a law. We read in Romans 3.20, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in God's sight. That's the bad news, but the good news is the end of Romans 3.20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, Moses wasn't just about the law. Moses was about grace. Before God ever gave Moses the law, he said, remember, I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one that graciously delivered you from Egypt. Now, here's my law, and out of gratitude, obey it. Because you've already been delivered. Now, why would you not obey it? It wasn't work salvation. It was out of gratitude that God's people were to obey the law because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law of God, the very giving of it, is gracious by God because it's for our good. It reveals to us that we are sinners. If there is no standard, you don't know that a standard has been broken. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's why Paul says in Romans 7.12 that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Through and through. And as you fast forward more, Of course, God makes a covenant with David and then we come to the new covenant in which the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant is seen. The king of of kings comes to sit upon his throne to rule over his people in fulfillment of that ancient promise in Genesis chapter 3 that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. This one covenant of grace, here is the point, took place in all these various dispensations until finally it was realized in the Lord Jesus Christ this one people of God. Because remember, God told Abraham, you're not just to circumcise those in your household that were born from you. You are to circumcise the foreigner. You are to circumcise your slaves, Gentiles that are identifying with the people of God. So Genesis 17 is a ratification and renewal of, of God's promising words that he had already made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis chapter 15. We're moving kind of slow this morning, but that's okay. Go back with me to Genesis 12 and verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, listen to this language, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Just the families of the Jews? No. All the families of the earth will be blessed. Or what about chapter 13 and verse 16? I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Or Genesis 15:5, he brought him outside, God did to Abram, and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So why Genesis 17, if God has already made these promises? Why Genesis 17 if God has already promised to give him offspring and to bless him so that all the families of the earth will be blessed? Well, it's because Abraham is like you and I. He has weak faith. And in fact, between chapter 15 and chapter 17, the last time God appeared to him, Abraham had done something very sinful. He had taken another woman, not Sarah. And he had had a child with that woman, Ishmael. And Ishmael was no little baby boy. He was now 13 years old. Long time had passed. And Abraham had thought about this. Yeah, God, you, you in fact are right. I must have misunderstood. I thought you said that um, my seed would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the dust on the earth. But I guess I misunderstood you. What you really wanted me to do is not to have children with Sarah. I mean, after all, we're too old to do that. You wanted me to have a child with Hagar, and Ishmael is that promised heir. I'm good with just one kid. God, you fulfilled your promise. I'm 100 years old. I'm as good as dead, as the Bible says in Romans 4. And so God comes to Abraham graciously, and he says, Abraham, you have weak faith. Because my promises were much greater than that, much larger than that. Do you remember my covenant of grace that I made with you in chapter 15, chapter 13, chapter 12? Do you remember what it was like before you had one son? And do you remember that I promised you would have many sons? As, as many as the stars in the sky, as many as the dust on the earth, the little specks of dust? And finally, we see here in Genesis 17 that Abraham's faith is strengthened. There are really three parts of God's covenant of grace with Abraham in Genesis 17. This covenant that God makes with Abraham is kind of like an archetype of every true believer's relationship with God. That's why I'm taking pains this morning to be very careful and thoughtful and slow for you to grasp that this is absolutely significant to understanding the gospel and it's absolutely significant to understanding who the people of God are and what marks out the people of God and how the promises of God are affected generationally that salvation is not merely an individual promise God is bigger than that And Abraham, I think for the first time, sees that here in Genesis chapter 17. Now, we're going to go through these three parts, but this morning, all I want to do is go through them generally. That will take just a few moments, and then we'll look more particularly at the first part. First of all, we see the sovereignty in the covenant's activation. That's verses 1 through 3a. And we're going to circle back around to this. But in summary form, what we see here is that if anybody is going to have a relationship with God, God must be the sovereign initiator. God must be the one who comes to you and reveals himself to you. Nobody can do it for you. God is sovereign over who is saved. God is sovereign over who is in covenant with himself. So we see the sovereignty and the covenant's activation. Secondly, we see the scope of the covenant's administration, 3b through verse 8. And under these verses, we see that there are really three parts of this scope. God is thinking in very big terms here, very wide terms, because there is an international flavor, verses 4 through 6, there is a generational flavor, verse 7, and there is an eternal flavor, verse 8. In verses 4 through 6, notice it with me again. There's an international dimension. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of what? A multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. This is International. Any understanding of God's promises to Abraham cannot, listen to me, cannot exclude Gentiles. If you do, then you deny those three verses I just read. It's just, this is not about a covenant with Jewish people as much as it is a covenant that begins with Jewish people and a Jewish people that God uses as a vehicle to bring about the Messiah who then intends to save the world, i.e. all kinds of Jews and Gentiles and black people and white people and Hispanic people and Asian people and people from every continent. He is the father of a multitude of nations. So what God is doing here is huge. But it's not only international, the scope of it, it's also generational. Verse 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring oh okay so Abraham's children no not just his children throughout their generations oh so God's going to create just this nation of Israel through the loins of Abraham tons of people being born and the promises of God pass through no 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 not just Abraham's children not just Abraham's children's 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 but what does it say verse 7 an everlasting covenant this is generational through all believers like abraham that god promises to save generationally he promises to save the offspring of those who believe so the scope Of the covenant's administration is international, generational, and verse 8, eternal. We already mentioned it. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. How long will he be their God? He will be their God everlastingly. So what God promises to Abraham has eternal, generational, international, consequences the sovereignty in the covenant's activation the scope of the covenant's administration international generational eternal and finally the sign for the covenant's affirmation what is the sign verses 9 through 14 i won't take the time to read it but verse 11 you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you And every male, verse 12, throughout your generations, whether born in your house, bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he and he who is born in your house, he who is bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. So those are the three parts of this covenant. Now let's unpack in greater detail the first part. And then next week, we'll circle back around to parts two and three. The first part concerns the sovereignty and the covenant's activation. And what you need to understand this morning is that God sovereignly activates his eternal purpose in real time with real people to fulfill his promises. He does it in such a way That by the end of this, Abraham now has a full vision of God. He had faith before, but it was weak faith. After this, God reveals himself to Abraham in such a way that Abraham, let me put it to you this way, cannot say no. It is irresistible grace through and through. And if you are going to be saved this morning, there is nothing you can can do there is nothing you can say there is nothing you can be if God is going to save anybody he himself must do it and he must do it in such a dramatic way that unless he reveals himself to you you will not show yourself to him you will run from him and you will hide from him and you will do it to your own detriment and you will enter eternal darkness but if his sovereign grace grabs a hold of your heart you won't be able to say no. You will respond. But remember, he's the one that activates it. So notice verse 1. I mean, this is so simple. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. Romans 4 says he was about 100 and as good as dead. So, Abram's not expecting much out of life by now. These are his twilight years. In fact, I've already affirmed that for the most part, he thinks that God has fulfilled his promise because he didn't interpret the promise literally. He interpreted it figuratively. Oh, you didn't really mean literally through Sarah. Many children, you just meant I was supposed to marry someone that wasn't supposed to be my wife and have a child by her. That's wonky interpretation. That's reading the tea leaves. That's not interpreting scripture literally. Abrams 99, the Lord appears to him, and notice how he appears. I am. I am God Almighty. I am. I am who I am. The name of God. God Almighty, El Shaddai. Two Hebrew nouns, El and Shaddai, both derived from a Hebrew word referring to power. We could say referring to sovereignty. Here I am, Abram. I am. I am God Almighty. There's an emphasis here on the sovereign power of God. The sovereign power of God to communicate the covenant. The sovereign power of God to activate the covenant. The sovereign power of God to initiate the covenant. Abraham did not come to God. God appeared to Abram. And he is, I am. God is all in all. God is enough. God is the self-sufficient one. To just say this quickly to you this morning, that if... You have God, you have all of his promises. And if you have God and you have all of his promises, you have enough. God is enough. God is all in all. God is the great I am. God is the I am God Almighty. Here is Abraham, weak in faith. And for the first time, he finally sees the power and the sovereignty of God. God is making himself known to Abraham. God is giving Abraham front and center view of himself in his Shekinah glory so that now Abraham has wide open eyes of faith because God has revealed himself to Abraham in such a way that he cannot not, to use a double negative, see God. He sees him. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. He sees the power of God. And he's listening. Notice what God says. Verse 1, walk before me and be blameless. To walk before God is to put him before us In such a manner that everything we think about, everything that we do, everything that we speak, realizes that his eye is upon us. It is to think and to speak and to act knowing that God's eye is upon us. That God's eye is watching us and that we've seen his glory. And we don't want to do anything that would dishonor him or shame him. To walk before God, to walk blamelessly means to have a constant regard of his word as our rule and his glory as our end. Is that true about you this morning? Do you have a constant regard for God's word as your rule and God's glory as your end? Or is your rule your rule and your glory your glory? Do you do what you want to do for the sake of yourself? A holy life, a blameless life, takes into account God's will above all. And it says, I will think and speak and act the way God wants me to live. It is to have a constant regard of his word as our rule, his glory as our end. This is a conditional covenant. Do you see that? First thing God says is, I'm God Almighty. But then he says, walk before me and be blameless. So there is a sense in which Abram has a responsibility to respond to the grace that's been revealed to him. But not in any sort of work salvation way. Remember what Paul says in Philippians 2, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And why should you do that? Maybe a better question, how can you do that? Verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. We are to work out what God has already worked in. This is God revealing to Abraham who he is and all of his power. I'm going to make these promises to you. I'm going to assure you that I will come through, but I want you to know that you still have a responsibility to walk blamelessly and wholly before me. But as you well know, the holy highway is not always smooth. And that is why this is not God calling Abraham to walk perfectly. No, this is a call to Abraham to walk perseveringly. Uh, We may walk swervingly on the holy path, but as long as we're walking perseveringly, we are giving evidence that God's grace has changed us. God's grace has confronted us. We are a new creation in Christ. We are seeking the things above, not the things on this earth. We are seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness because we've had a vision of God that is irresistible and we can do none other. We cannot turn away. We cannot go off the path because God determines it so. Right after giving the condition, you must walk blameless. Notice verse 2. He goes right back that I may make a covenant, my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly, as if to say, yes, you are to walk blamelessly in response to me, revealing myself to you, but this is my covenant that I am making with you, verse 2, and I will fulfill it. I will multiply you greatly. Recalling the promises he had made before to him. So the grace comes first, I am God Almighty, then the requirement for obedience, but right after that, it's the reaffirmation of God's grace. That I am with you and I will fulfill this covenant. Now, what is the response? Verse three, then Abram fell on his face. Then Abram fell on his face. He is overcome with the brightness of God's Shekinah glorious, sovereign, powerful presence. He's falling down like a dead man. He's falling down like John did in Revelation 1. He's falling down like Daniel did in Daniel 8 and Daniel 10. And you say to yourself, what kind of response is this? Get up off your feet. Show some respect. But oh no, this is humble worship and adoration. No words from Abraham. I love what Calvin says. He says, and I quote, Although Abram utters not a word, he declares more fully by his silence than if he had spoken with a loud and sounding voice that he yields obedience to the word of God. See the pattern. It's... I am God Almighty, I'm, I'm revealing myself to you. Then it's walk before me, obey me, live blamelessly. Then it's the grace again, I'm going to be faithful to this covenant. And then there's the response. That's always how a true believer lives his life. They see a vision of God's grace. They see the exceeding sinfulness of their sin. They are saved by God's mercy, saved by God's grace. And it is that grace that empowers a blameless and holy and pure life. Not perfect, but pure life. A life that perseveres to the glory of God. And the more they hear the grace of God, the more worshipful they become and humble they become before God Almighty. See, here's the reality, true belief. True faith proves its confession not in mere words of the mouth, but in a worship of one's life. It is not the words of your mouth, it's the worship of your life. You say, Well, Pastor Andrew, we said a lot of words this morning. We've confessed our sins, we've recited the catechism, we've prayed but those are just words. If you don't have inward belief, if you've not truly seen God in his glory, if you've not truly come front and center with his grace and he has changed you and forgiven you, then those are just words. Abram does not speak anything. He reveals his obedience by his actions. And that's what I want you to understand this morning. When we speak about God's covenant of grace, it is grace through and through, grace from the beginning to the end. But God's grace always changes God's people. There is always a response. There is always a life of worship and a life of obedience. And God's covenant of grace Typified here in Abraham is what is true of all of God's people. What did Paul say in Romans chapter 4? He said this that is why Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham is believing in the promises of God, that is what makes him right before God. His obedience, his response, is evidence of his belief. And I want to say also what I said at the beginning, that Abraham is not the head of this covenant, because that may be confusing. It's not as if God is making a covenant with Abraham, because this is dependent upon Abraham. Paul said in Romans chapter 4 that we are to have faith like Abraham. Abraham is our, our example. He is not our head. Abraham is not our Savior, and Abraham never understood himself as being that. Turn with me to John chapter 8. What ultimately was Abraham trusting in? What was it ultimately Abraham was longing for when he had a full vision of God? Well, I'm just going to quote the words of Jesus. Verse 54 of John 8, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I did not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. And by the way, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day He saw it and was glad. Abraham saw the day of Christ in the future and was glad. Abraham was looking to Christ. Christ is the head and the surety of the covenant of grace. Abraham is just an individual that God chose through whom he would create his people throughout Generation after generation after generation. And back in Romans 4, Paul is very clear that Abraham is only the father of all of those who believe. Abraham could not believe for you. And a parent cannot believe for his or her child. Salvation, although it is covenantal, and although the promises are covenantal, it ultimately comes down to the individual who must trust in these promises. God can make sweeping promises. God can make promises that are, that are so sweeping and so large that if we appropriate the appropriate means, God will answer our prayers. He will save our children. But faith in Christ is still individualistic. Cannot believe for your children. You cannot save your children. Just like Abraham could not save us. He did not believe for us to bring us the experience of salvation. He believed in order to be an example of what faith looks like. And the life of one who has truly seen God. The life of one in which the grace of God has been activated and realized. It will look like the life and the faith of Father Abraham. Now next week, we will look at the second and third part, beginning with the scope of the covenant in its administration. And as I said, this scope has an international, generational, an eternal element to it. That if you fail to see, you are shortchanging the promises of God. Part of being an obedient Christian is trusting all of the promises of God. So when he says Abraham's going to be the father of many nations, a multitude of nations, And when God says these promises are for his offspring throughout all generations, eternally so, we must trust those and cling to those and obey God's prescriptions for his people. And we'll see that next week. Let us pray. Father, your word in Genesis 17 is so rich because it helps us to see Lord, your covenant of grace. Lord, your condescending favor to one like Abraham, who is a man like us because he was a sinner. How you revealed yourself to him. How you made your promises to him. We see the weakness of his faith, but then we see your grace strengthening that weakness to become strong faith so that he even longed for the day of Christ and he rejoiced. Father, we pray that as we continue to unpack this covenant of grace, that you would help us to realize what it means practically in terms of the new covenant and how this Abrahamic covenant, this covenant of grace is now fulfilled in the new covenant, fulfilled in the life of the church with many of the same components, the same God, the one true people of God. Help us to see these things. And help us to worship you for it in a greater way. We pray and ask all of this in the blessed and strong name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.